0: Ollie! (laughs) Don't get up now. Sit right there. How'd you know I was here? I saw your picture in the paper. Did you? Yeah. How'd I look? Well, you haven't changed a bit. (laughs) Neither have you, too. You know, if I hadn't have seen you, I never would have known you. (laughs) Gee, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to see you, too. Have you missed me all this time? I certainly have. I missed you, too. (laughs) Well, And I think there was something about a gentleness in their comedy, and I think there was something about their timing that was—they had a lovely pacing to their comedy that that felt like my internal pacing, you know, how I think and how I talk was kind of like how Laurel and Hardy were. They really took their time, and and it was just—it just again, you know, like being in the theater at Lord Bing in the theater department, it just felt like like being at home. I.
1: Wayne Thomas York was born to act while it's a dream shared by many few actually live out their passion in the way he has for nearly 40 years in this episode Wayne talks about making it in Hollywood his reverence for the golden age of film and a lifetime on stage and screen it's all coming up next on the work not work show Wayne Thomas York has been a professional actor since 1981, with his feature film credits including Meet the Fockers with Ben Stiller, Once Upon a Christmas and Twice Upon a Christmas with Kathy Ireland, and Runaway with Tom Selleck. He was a regular on the hit shows Wingin' It on Family Channel and AJ's Time Travelers on Fox. He has also appeared on Single White Spenny, Hannah Montana, Star Trek Voyager, Two and a Half Men, Boston Legal, The West Wing, Becker, CSI, and The X-Files. For nearly five years, Wayne appeared as Ned the Orkin Man in the international television advertising campaign and has appeared in more than 150 television commercials. His live theatre credits include The Roar of the Crowd for Theatre Forty in Beverly Hills, Shakespeare's Henry IV at the Odyssey Theatre in Ottawa, and Cyrano de Bergerac at the Richmond Gateway. More recently, Wayne has reinvented himself as an assistant locations manager for the television shows The New Celebrity Apprentice, Good Girl's Revolt, Colony, and most recently, TBS's Angie Tribeca. Wayne lives in Los Angeles, California, with his wife and two children, and where we talked with him for this episode. Wayne Thomas York, I'm exhausted just going through your resume, which is remarkable both for its breadth and longevity. Welcome, and it's an honor to have you on the Work Not Work Show.
0: Oh my goodness, Terrence! I can't tell you listening to you go through my resume. If I could just imagine a balloon expanding, that would be my head <laughs> expanding. Uh, my hats will never fit after hearing you go down that list. That is so nice of you to to invite me on the show, and for me to be able to talk about my experiences. And um, wow, and that that resume. And you know, I'm only 26 years old. <laughs> <laughs> now, now,
1: in the interest of full disclosure to our listeners, Wayne, you and I first met in high school around 1975, some 40 years ago. But up until today, we had not spoken in 37 years. So what have you been up to?
0: Whoa. We have not <laughs> spoken in 37 years. One is unbelievable. And two, it, it honestly feels like I just spoke with you, you know, a number of months ago. It, it, it's to hear your voice is like this wonderful time travel. I just can't believe it's been 37 years. What a treat to hear your voice again.
1: <laughs> seriously, though. Well, thank you. And it's nice to hear your your voice, too, Wayne. It's been such a long time. And you, you haven't changed a bit in 37 years, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, seriously, though, my recollection from Lord Bing High School in Vancouver, B.C. in the late 70s is that you were the guy that everybody just knew was born to act, like you had already been doing it for your entire life. What was your earliest memory of wanting to act, and when did you first think about making it a career?
0: I think the first show I did was in fourth grade. It was in a production of Robin Hood, and I was cast as Friar Tuck. I remember really enjoying being in the robes or whatever that outfit was with a rope tied around my belly. Little did I know I'd be making a career out of playing middle-aged men from fourth grade on <laughs> because because they're all kind of variations of the same. So that was my first experience. And my second experience, I let a long time go in between then. I seem to remember enjoying that in fourth grade, but then it got to ninth grade and And I was in a production at Lord Bing High School uh, of Please Pass the World, and I played Doctor Hoopy. And I think that was the first time where I kind of went, "Hey, this is really kind of fun. I kind of, I kind of like doing this." And I like all the people that I'm working with. And I think I kind of felt like I wasn't a kid who really fit in because I didn't have the sports gene, and I still don't. So I really couldn't talk to other kids that way about stuff. And once I went into the theater department, all of a sudden, I kind of fit in. And it's not like, Wayne, you're really acting goofy. Well, they would encourage you to act goofy. Perfect. And I would be around other people who were acting goofy. And I, I just kind of felt like, hey, I'm kind of home. So I think that was the first time where I thought, I'm home.
1: Please pass the world. I, I have some vague recollection of that. Wasn't that written by the high school drama teacher working at Bing at the time? <laughs> I, th-
0: I, think, I think it was. Please Pass the World was written by, oh my gosh, I can't believe I remember this, by Stan Warwick, who ran the theater department at that time. I was going to say, that was the drama teacher at Lord Bing, wasn't it? You're absolutely right. He wrote Please Pass the World and created that wonderful Dr. Hoopie. Who, honestly, I don't remember much about the show. I remember I lived in kind of a cave. And and I think, I don't know, were there greasers? Uh, like, tough guys? And I don't remember. But I remember just feeling like uh, at home. It was really, really a great feeling.
1: I don't know if you remember, but our high school allowed students to paint murals on the lockers. You broke ranks with the usual psychedelic peace symbols and heavy metal band logos and painted, I think, Laurel and Hardy, Fatty Arbuckle, and Groucho Marx. So your fascination with this golden age of Hollywood goes a long way back. Can you tell us a little bit about your reverence
0: for this period and the influence it's had on your career? First of all, I have to tell you, uh, painting those lockers was fantastic. I can't believe that Lord Bing allowed me to paint, I don't know, five or six lockers because I only had one. So who was the poor schlub who had to open the locker with Groucho Marx's face on it who probably thought, who the hell's that guy on my locker? But it was a Hirschfeld drawing of Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy. And if I remember right, it was Charlie Chaplin and Groucho. I I guess I had some of the names wrong. Well, no, you were very close. Uh, You said Fatty Arbuckle, but maybe. Yeah. Anyway. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, I, I was raised by a single parent by my mom and she had me when she was 42. So she was an older parent, but I don't think even my mom or certainly my older brother or sister had any love of old movies or anything like that. I think I kind of dug that one up myself. And I, I just remember always loving them. And when it came to like Laurel and Hardy, J.P. Patches was a kid's show that used to be uh, uh, broadcast from Seattle. And uh, I used to watch it two days a week because every Tuesday and Thursday, J.P. Patches would introduce Laurel and Hardy. And he would show a Laurel and Hardy short, and I would set my alarm. <laughs> I would get up earlier than anybody in the family. Don't bug me. I'm going downstairs to watch Laurel and Hardy. And I think I still think they kind of roll their eyes uh, about my love of Laurel and Hardy, but I would just watch it and so thoroughly enjoy it. And and it started then. And I think there was something about a gentleness in their comedy. And I think there was something about their timing that was, they had a lovely pacing to their comedy that that felt like my internal pacing. You know, how I think and how I talk was kind of like how Laurel and Hardy were. They really took their time and And it was just, it just, again, you know, like being in the theater, Lord being in the theater department, it just felt like, like being at home. I felt very comfortable with them. And then that branched out into other comedians and then into old films and then into silent movies.
1: In an... Excellent article written by Michael T. Toole of Turner Classic Movies much later in your career. You directly attribute your comedic timing as having been modeled specifically on Oliver Hardy. So to say that his skills are those that you admire seems to understate the case.
0: Yeah, there's something about the rhythm and there's something about his movement. And from watching it as a young kid... It made sense to me. And I guess, you know, I don't know, I don't mean to sound weird about it, but in a weird way, just became kind of part of me or at least part of my performing. And I know there have been a few times when I felt like doing that camera stare where Oliver Hardy kind of looks at the camera and goes, "Mm." hmm. There's certainly been some times when I wanted to do that, uh, but but I haven't. But that same kind of feeling is there. So, yeah, I would say he was a strong influence in, in me and whatever style I may or may not have. It's a moment to which
1: countless actors aspire, but sadly, very few ever experience. Can you tell us about the precise moment where you heard for the first time, you have the part and there was the prospect of being paid to act?
0: Boy, I know that two of the the earliest jobs I got, and I don't remember if they're the first, but, but one of them was at the arts club doing Crimes of the Heart. And uh, Bill Miller directed that. It was with uh, with Moira Wally and Gabriel Rose and Sheila McGill. That was fantastic. And I celebrated my 21st birthday with the cast. And it, it's just such a, a professional theater company. And the theater is so beautiful. And those performers were so great to work with. That was a real highlight for me for theater. And then the earliest part I got in a movie was a movie called Runaway with Tom Selleck and Gene Simmons. It was a nineteen eighty-four science fiction film written and directed by Michael Crichton. That was that was so much fun to be part of such a big movie. And I only had a few lines in it, but I remember so well Tom Selleck would feed me lines and they would do his close up first. And I thought, well, after his close up, he's certainly gonna disappear. (laughs) And you know, because you're used to as the smaller parts, you're used to kind of playing to the C-stand, or they put a sandbag there, and they say, okay, this is Tom Selleck. Well, he, he stuck around. He said, no, no, I want to be here for Wayne. So he stayed there, and he read li- his lines off camera uh, for my close-up, and uh, it was just really, really professional. And Michael Crichton was so lovely to work with. So those two, I think, were were really early, big big shots in the arm.
1: After Studio
0: fifty eight, you spent the first ten
1: years or so of your career in your hometown of Vancouver, Canada. How did this period develop your career and shape your thinking about your then future in
0: Hollywood? The fantastic thing about working in Vancouver is that you you get to play a variety of roles. So if I did a show at the Arts Club and they needed kind of a comedic tough biker guy or something like that, I could play that or if you know any of those kind of oddball parts you get a chance to play when you're in Vancouver. So I was just so fortunate in getting to play this wide variety and do musical comedy and do a Shakespeare and do a this and do a that. So Vancouver allowed me to do that and also allowed me to do theater and also film and commercials and things because so much is happening in Vancouver. So it was just a great place to, as a starting ground. In fact, many friends even say now, Wayne, why don't you come home to Vancouver? <laughs> Well, because frankly, it's as expensive as L.A., and I don't know if I can afford to live in Vancouver anymore. Which of your projects during this period were you most proud? I think the project that comes to mind that was most memorable for me was in a TV show called Border Town, and I played Teddy Roosevelt. And that was both so much fun for me because I got to do both the research that I love to do and watch any kind of film footage there might be or or listen to the few recordings there are of his voice or look at all the photographs and then I got to be him that that was a thrill and the the other one that stands out is is a show called The Black Stallion and I did that with Mickey Rooney and didn't have a large part in that but I got to meet Mickey Rooney and to act with Mickey Rooney And, you know, I have a love, as we've talked about, I have a love of old Hollywood, and he's from old Hollywood, so when he found out that I was asking him questions about what he loves and and lived through, he did not want to stop talking to me. And they would say, you know, Wayne, you're needed on the set. (laughs) And and Mickey would be, oh, wait, just a minute, just a minute. He would take my hand and hold my hand and, you know, be Mr. Responsible. I would want to get to the set, but no, Mickey had to finish that story. Right. And the one story I remember from Mickey, just very quickly, Mickey Rooney, I was standing with a bunch of the background people, and Mickey Rooney comes up and wants to just chat with the background people and says to one of the women, you look just like my (laughs) ex-wife. And one of the other background (laughs) smartasses said, which one? (laughs) He had like eight wives, didn't he, over the course of his life? Oh, I think he did. I think he did. Our folks think we're babes in arms, huh? Well, we'll show them whether we're babes in arms or not. I'm going to write a show for us and put it on right here in Seaport. It will be the most up-to-date thing these hicks around here have ever seen. Opening night, we'll have Max Gordon, Sam Harris, Lee Schubert down to give us the once-over. How about it, kids? Oh, working with Mickey Rooney in Vancouver, and then when I came down to Los Angeles, working with Dick Van Dyke on Diagnosis Murder was, for me, heaven. Because they are, well, not Dick Van Dyke so much, he's not maybe as old, but they are just from that period, and Mickey Rooney, of course, is from that period, and Dick Van Dyke was best friends with Stan Laurel and gave the eulogy at Stan Laurel's funeral, and I got to talk with him about all that, and I even said, listen... Would you mind posing for a picture where you do of working with these these kind of Hollywood icons?
1: The next generation of actors coming up are not going to have that same first-hand connection with
0: old Hollywood that you've had. I again consider myself very fortunate. Um, and if I wasn't so darn slim in the pictures that I have with Mickey Rooney, I'd show them more often. <laughs> right? <laughs> because the reaction isn't, "Oh my gosh, look, you're standing with Mickey Rooney." The reaction is, "Oh my gosh, you were so slim." Oh, there you oh, go. Oh, shut up. I remember, though, when I was in in British Columbia uh, that I played Stan Laurel in the B.C. Lottery commercials for I don't know how many. Well, let's just say now I'm playing Oliver Hardy. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: 1991, you broke camp and headed to Hollywood. What were the events leading up to that? And why did you know that was a step you simply had to take at that time?
0: Again, I wish it was a grand plan. I wish I could say, I plan to work 10 years in Vancouver, and then I'll move to Hollywood. But it's not the case. I had just gone through, in 1991, I'd just gone through a breakup in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it wasn't a terribly long relationship. But it was a relationship that really kind of broke my heart. So I thought, I've just got to get out of Vancouver. And because my mother was born in Vancouver and I had a Canadian passport and my father was born in Brooklyn, so I had a United States uh, passport, an American passport, I thought, well, this is my chance. I'm just going to go down to Hollywood and disappear for six months and get over this relationship and see what happens in L.A.
1: Then it was really just a coincidence, a reaction to something that had occurred in your life outside of acting and not something you had contemplated or planned out in any precise way.
0: Well, I guess I had maybe thought about, gee, you know, I wonder, since I have this golden opportunity of two passports, maybe I should give L.A. a try. Um, So maybe in the back of my mind. But what really pushed me like a catapult was the end of that relationship.
1: Wayne, a second ago, you mentioned that you were the son of a single parent and also that your mother had you when she was a little bit older, when she was 42. Did that have an impact on your career and your development as an actor?
0: Boy, that is such a great question. I've never thought about that before. I wonder if if having a single parent pushed me in that realm of becoming an actor or was it being the third kid going, hey, look at me. hey, don't forget me. But, but you know, it probably did because I think my father passed away when my mother was expecting me. Wow. So uh, it was about four months before I was born. So my mother returned from the United States to Vancouver to be with her mom and then gave birth to me so she could be closer to home. So it might have been at first in a response to a very busy, overworked parent, and being the third kid that kind of pushed me in the direction of of you know hey hey look at me I can do this and I can do that and and all that and and maybe maybe in that was was the lovely safety of watching Laurel and Hardy and things like that of a nice kind of gentle comedians and things like that that might have all been part of it but uh uh, I'll give you the number of my therapist, and uh, <laughs> you you can ask them that part, but you know in thinking about it uh, seriously, it it might it might have just been part of it
1: yes. did she in any way want that life for herself? Do you think? Did she have aspirations to act
0: or to be in the movies like you? Not at all. i I am such an odd duck in our family. Nobody that I know of in our family wanted to, uh, to be in the arts in any way. And uh, no, I just can't tell you where that comes from, where that comes from in other people. Um, but no, my mother did not have that interest at all.
1: You wrote about how when you arrived in Hollywood, one of the things that you did early on was sell subscriptions for the Los Angeles Theater Center by telephone. That sounds like the ultimate In paying your professional dues, can you tell us about that experience and what were you able to learn from that and bring forward into your acting career?
0: Oh, if you could only see me! I'm covering my face with my hands. Uh, That was (laughs) that was such a humbling experience. You know, you come off of ten years and you're at this lovely high of, hey, I played Teddy Roosevelt and uh, I did this and that and commercials and you know, and then you get down and, and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know anybody here in Hollywood. I'm renting a room in a house in Hollywood. Wow. I don't have a car. I'm taking the bus everywhere to (laughs) auditions. You know, Hollywood (laughs) is enormous. It's spread out. Right. Los Angeles. Right. So when I was looking through the newspaper, an actor's newspaper, I think it's called Backstage or Backstage West, I saw an ad for the Los Angeles Theater Center selling subscriptions. I thought, well, here's a way that I can get my foot in the door in the theater, meet some theater folks and just get closer to the heart of it all. And uh, so I took the job, terribly low paying, taking the bus from Hollywood, as I said, down to downtown Los Angeles, where apparently cockroaches like to ride the bus in Los Angeles as well. And, <laughs> and uh, I didn't know that because they don't in Vancouver that I remember. Right. Yeah, it, it, it was a real challenge because I remember phoning people and saying, hello, my name is Wayne York. I'm phoning from the Los Angeles Theater Center. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Is that the theater that's downtown? Yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Doesn't it smell like urine downtown? Well, no. No, they fixed that. <laughs> and then and then they would say, well, what are some of the shows? And I would say, well, the first show of the season, and I remember this show so well because it made it so difficult to sell, right. it was Veins and Thumbtacks. <laughs> and they would say what, and I'd say, well, um, listen, the show's Veins and Thumbtacks. But do you know myself Pfeiffer? And they would say, yeah. And I'd say, well, her ex-boyfriend Fisher Stevens is the star of Veins and Thumbtacks. So it would it would just go downhill from there. And uh, but you know, and not to say anything bad about Fisher Stevens because he just directed that what apparently is a fantastic documentary on Debbie Reynolds. So so he directed that. So he's gone on to fantastic things. But that particular thing, holy Toledo, (laughs) that was a hard sell. But, But it did lead, after a couple months of, one, meeting some wonderful people, and two, getting a job at a company called Synapse Technologies. And that was directly through meeting somebody at the Los Angeles Theater Center, where I'll just backtrack a little bit. By the way, the one thing we learned, that I learned, that I carried away from the Los Angeles Theater Center, was that the guy who was the manager said, Never take the first no. Always go for three no's. Just keep pushing. And that is one thing that stayed with me while auditioning down here in LA was, okay, you get the the one no. Okay, Hey, what about seeing me if I try this? Like always try different angles. Always keep selling. And uh, so that was very helpful. But then I went on to Synapse Technologies. It was a company um, created by Bob Abel, and it ran out of the back of the Ambassador Hotel where Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. They were doing a project, one of the first um, interactive computer programs called Columbus Discovery, Encounter, and Beyond. And they initially hired me as a production assistant. And then I kind of slowly convinced them that instead of me running down to the library and stuff... I have library experience from Vancouver. Why don't you get me to purchase your books, catalog them in your own library, and I will check out books within the company, and we don't have to do all this running downtown stuff. So they went for it. They hired me as their librarian, and uh, I, I ran the library for Synapse Technologies, loved it. And when they finally, in the history part of this program, got to Hollywood, I, I just leapt to it and said, listen, anything I can do to help you with this project? And I said, hey, why don't I contact one of the kids from our gang or Little Rascals and see if they want to be interviewed for our show? It didn't happen. What, from the original show? From the original show. But you know who was still alive was Spanky. Spanky. Holy smoke. Spanky McFarlane. Yeah. So I called Spanky McFarlane. The interview did not happen. He wanted to charge a little more money than we had uh, for a budget. But I got to talk to Spanky. Wow. For me, you know, it was it was just a fantastic moment. How much of this are you prepared to credit to luck
1: in terms of how one thing led to another? It seems like this was a happy series of coincidences in a way.
0: I think I was looking for a job that I could I could work at the job and enjoy what I was doing, but also audition on the side. And if I had to disappear for two or three days to work on a project, then I could. Mm-hmm. Because, frankly, I needed the money. Right. So it was trying to juggle both. But I have to tell you, luck is such a big part of this whole thing. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I just try to be available if doors open and to be open to trying something new. And if that door opens, I'll say, yeah, I'll try that. You can always go back through the door, hopefully. But a lot of it is is good fortune and good luck, but always being ready to kind of jump at the opportunity if someone throws you a lifeline. Because it's a gateway
1: to so much of the rest of an actor's career, can you walk us through a typical Hollywood
0: audition process that you would have experienced during this period? First, you get a call from your agent, and it's, you've got an audition tomorrow. That's great. It's at three o'clock. Great. Send me the script. Great. Uh, you memorize it as much as you can. You try and get a suggestion of a costume uh, as much as you can, and try and... You know, for so many of us, uh, especially when we're starting out, get time off work if you can. And then you get to that audition and you sit in a room and you look around and you're prepared as much as you can. You have to calm the anxiety of, oh, my God, this might get me away from my regular job. This might lead to something. And you look around the room and there's a lot of people who look kind of like you. Or there's a lot of people who maybe were in a series Or, oh my God, there's so-and-so, that guy. So you have to kind of calm all that, cut out all the thing. You need those those blinders on. And then they call your name. And you go in and you're in a room either with the casting director and yourself or a camera person and the casting director. Or maybe there's directors, producers, writers. There can be two or 15 people in the room. And then you just stay as focused and try to have as good a time as you can because the chances are it's your last time that you're going to be reading that you know the odds of us getting apart are pretty minimal right so make this your one for lack of a better word your one performance and and try and and make it as good as you possibly can and then you leave the room say good luck to the other people or just walk out And then you wait. And that's the most excruciating part is, am I going to get a call on my drive home? Uh, Shoot, I didn't hear by the end of today. Well, maybe first thing in the morning, of course, they're probably going to call. Do you get a call? Oh, maybe sometimes they call you and put you on a veil, which means they're holding your availability for the shoot day. Wow. That, That puts you on pins and needles because then you know it's down to maybe two or three people and they've got them all on a veil. And you're waiting to see who backs out, who can't do it, who's charging too much or whatever. Maybe it comes your way. Maybe it doesn't. But, yeah, it's it's a it's a wacky process. And you can also hear the person before you as you're sitting there in the waiting room get a huge reaction from the room, like a big laugh or something. And you go, well, geez. Yeah. Now I got to go. Those guys were hit and you go in and it's a dud. But uh, oddly – that might be the one you book, and the guy before you got this big laugh didn't get it. You just never know uh, with this, so you always go at it like, this is your shot. Go for it.
1: How many of those would you have gone through before you were successful in landing that all-important first part in Hollywood? This is kind of a lead into my next question, which is, what were some of the early roles that you landed, and how did that experience compare to what you had encountered in Vancouver to that point?
0: Well, Vancouver was so great. Vancouver was like Studio 58 in that it gave me a ton of opportunity to play different parts, to to audition a lot because Vancouver was so busy. So that was a great launch pad to be down in L.A. where you realize, wait a minute, this is kind of the same. These auditions are the same. Everything kind of works the same. So Vancouver was a great training ground for that for me. And some of the early parts... Boy, when you first get a part, like I got a small part in Murphy Brown Mm -hmm. or uh, Coach, that is heaven. That is just heaven to be able to just phone home and say, hey, I got hired. Not only were things okay in Vancouver and people were supportive in Vancouver, I'm getting a little piece of the pie down here and it feels really good. I think the best one, the most fun was when I got cast in a kid's show called AJ's Time Travelers. Mm And I played both AJ's dad and then Izzy, the dog, when he goes on the time when AJ goes on the time machine, I was (laughs) Izzy, the dog, kind of like John Candy in Spaceballs. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we did 40 episodes. It was we worked on CBS Radford right next door to Roseanne. Mm -hmm. Guest stars would come on the show like Carol Kane or Richard Lewis or Edie McClurg or these people would just come on and be guest stars on a show. That was heaven. Because at that point, you're on a lot, you've got a parking space with your name on it, you're working on, you're working on a series. And the executive producer of that show was a great guy named Gianni Russo, and Gianni Russo played Carlo in the Godfather movie, the guy who James Caan uh, beat the poop out of <laughs> Um so he was this kind of he was this kind of a godfather like character and you would go in his office and on the wall it was a newspaper article a real newspaper article i think about a guy who he had hurt seriously so he you never really wanted to go in the office about any complaints just went in and go "Johnny, sir, it was a real pleasure working with you today." Around
1: 2002 you landed a recurring role as Ned the Orkin Man, an international television advertising campaign that lasted nearly five years. How did that come about? And can you talk a little about inhabiting that role for such an extended period of time?
0: Playing Ned the Orkin Man was such a thrill. And it just started like the, all the other auditions that I told you about, where you audition, you audition, you audition. And all of a sudden, I got this one. I got this one for the Orkin Man. And it was a one-shot deal. I did the commercial; it, it it went well. And then I think they said, "Well, we'd like you to do another." And in fact, we'd like you to do a little radio as well. At the same time, or a few months later, I was called into audition for the Maytag Man. They were looking for a new Maytag Man. Oh yeah. And my agent was very smart at that time. Uh, I mean, all the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, my agent was very smart in that he said, "Look." Wayne is going out for another spokesman. So if you want him to stay on as the Orkin man, then you might want to put him under contract. Oh, I see. They did. Thank God. And I was under a yearly contract uh, with the Orkin folks. And I could not do any other uniform spokesman. But other than that, I was free to do anything. But I just couldn't be anyone else's spokesman in that way. You couldn't be the Maytag man at the same time. I could not be the May- be the Maytag man, even though I don't know if that was coming my way. Uh, I could not do that, and that was fine because they they were so nice, and it was such a lovely a, a lovely time uh, just to get two paychecks a year. I would get a paycheck in January, and I'd get a paycheck in July. It just held me for the year. I could still go and do other things, and I did other things and did live shows and stuff. But uh, yeah, working with Orkin was fantastic. So it blossomed into this whole thing of doing, I don't know, 13 or 15 commercials, television commercials a year, and doing uh, a number of radio spots and and personal appearances. It, yeah, it was just, it was just a, a really lovely time. When you're an Orkin man, you get asked a lot of questions. Yeah. Can a cockroach really live a week with its head cut off? They can. Oh, they can. Now, you never know what you'll see. Spiders. Spiders? What about ants? Eh? It could be yeah. ants. What about silverfish? Man, do you do termites?
1: Hey, cook. Can you know, Yes. The like, termites, actually? Yes. I saw a carpenter ant
0: before. Is your mother here? Well, folks know that uh, we're just down the road. We're uh, a phone call away.
1: Was that your first experience of having a large number of people know you as a character as opposed to yourself? You, you might go down the street and, and people would shout out, hey, you're Ned the Orkin man, that kind of thing.
0: Well, it's fantastic. You know, it's, it's really fantastic. Uh, I don't know what actor, well, maybe, maybe when, you're, when you're a super celebrity, it's different. But for a guy who's, who's a workaday actor, to be recognized for doing something, and it's it's in a positive vein, mm-hmm. was was really special. And to have, I know when they brought me once up to Whistler to sign autographs and and sign photographs and and meet people, there was just this long line of people. Even my wife couldn't believe, that's for you. <laughs> it was just it was just a, a, a fantastic experience. And again, because it's such a positive. Role model. It wasn't like uh, the murderer in Friday the Thirteenth or something like that. It was for this, this kind of amiable spokesman for a very positive company. Hey, they get rid of bugs in your house. If it bugs you, bug me. Oh, it was just fantastic.
1: You and I had lost touch with each other uh, since high school, basically, and then you reappeared as as the Orca Man. And I remember saying every time that those commercials came on,
0: I know that guy. Ah, uh, well that that makes me even happier. It, it was a great time. It was a great time. We bought our house. We uh, uh, adopted our first daughter. Um, it it just was, was a really, really special time. And, you know, even now things are fantastic. And I don't mean to imply that, boy, those days were great. Mm-hmm. But those in particular were really wonderful days.
1: In October of 2007, you wrote some extremely kind words about the Ork and Roll wrapping up. You were a total pro about it. But perhaps you can share with us a little when a role like that comes to an end. And what are the emotions that are associated with that?
0: It was 2008. And I got a call from uh, the vice president of sales and marketing. I think he said we're changing advertising agencies. And that means going in a new direction for the campaign. On the surface, you like to go, I get it, of course. Hey, listen, best of luck. But it's it, it makes you very heavy in your heart because, because I, I – just thought the part really fit like a glove. And, and I loved doing it. And, and the paycheck didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. So to say goodbye to that and to know that it means, okay, that means you get back in the car and you start doing the auditions. And at that time, I think it was maybe one or two or three a day. So it means getting back to work. And then that's okay, too. But uh, I, I can't say it was easy. It was, uh, it was a bit of a, a letdown.
1: I could only imagine how hard that must have been because a part like that could easily have gone on for decades. Gordon Jump, for example, did the Maytag repairman for what I would guess was 10 or 15 years.
0: Oh, he did it for a long time. And then you look at that wonderful woman who does the progressive commercials. She's been doing that for a long time. The Can You Hear Me Now guy who's gone over to Sprint. Right. But, uh, yeah, that's the kind of thing you kind of hope, gee, I wish that were me. And uh, and other things have come my way, which have been just fantastic. But yeah, it was uh, it was fun to say I'm the Orkin man. Well, I I can say that you'll always be the
1: Orkin man as far as I'm concerned in terms of, you know, the, the new Orkin man seems a little nondescript. I thought you brought a lot of humanity to that part and all of the parts that you've done in that vein.
0: That's so nice, and and I I hope it's not bad that I've trained my children to boo every time that man comes on television. Uh, I have no idea who that that dude is, but kids, boo! (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Oh, my goodness. So
1: in roughly this same period, around 2005, um, you played the lead role of – and I know you don't like the term Fatty Arbuckle because Fatty Arbuckle didn't like that he was Roscoe Arbuckle. But you played him in Theater 40 of Beverly Hills, world premiere of the play Roar of the Crowd. This seems like a role you were almost born to play, given your long-standing fascination with this period.
0: Oh, playing Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was such a highlight in my theatrical career. I loved it. Of course, as we talked about, I love the time period that poor man who was a superstar in silent movies rivaled only by Charlie Chaplin making I think a million dollars a year I mean just more than any other actor he was huge and then you know, as probably the audience knows, or if they don 't, in one thousand nine hundred and twenty one at the height of his popularity, he throws a party in San francisco at the uh, at the St Francis hotel, and many people come but a, a couple of women come: one is Virginia Rappe and one is uh, Maud Delmont. And Virginia Rappe had a, a, some kind of appendix disease or something where if she drank, which she wasn't supposed to do, she was in danger of, of, of hurting herself. Anyway, she ends up in a room. She's in great pain. Roscoe, Fatty Arbuckle, tries to comfort her or, or, or help her. And it turns out she then gets taken to the hospital. She has a ruptured bladder. And a couple days later, she dies. So Maud Delmont, who was trying to extort money from, uh, from Roscoe, said, look, uh, my version of the story is you tried to rape her. That's how her bladder got ruptured is it's your weight on top of her. Oh, my goodness. And, oh, it was just horrible. Just horrible what that man went through. This is kind of one of those genial clowns, like a John Candy type of character. And then contrasted with this horrible thing that happened to him that someone accused him just to try to get money out of him. Someone accused him of doing. It ruined his career. Uh, He went through three trials and was finally found not guilty. And so much so that the jury wrote an apology to him and read it to him in the courtroom, saying, this never should have happened to you. They lined up to shake his hand, to hug him. And unfortunately, that was 1922. It was very hard for him to get back up off the ground. The audience, I think the Hayes office had just started. They banned all Fatty Arbuckle films. He eventually, near the end of that decade, I think started doing a few shorts for Warner Brothers. And then 1933, one day he signs a contract for his first feature-length film since the whole incident many years before. He signs a contract with Warner Brothers. He goes back to his, his room and he dies in his sleep. Uh, he was 46 years old and the poor guy was just railroaded. You do think that being hounded to
1: death by a false accusation, is an affectation of today's 24-hour news cycle. But Roscoe's story shows it's anything but that. It's been going on for as long as there have been newspapers and
0: reporters. Right, right. And and they talk about fake news now. Right. Well, that was fake news then, and William Randolph Hearst, made a fortune off of that poor man and and his circumstances and said that thanks to uh, Roscoe Arbuckle, we sold more papers with his story than we did with The Sinking of the Lusitania. Unbelievable.
1: So the play itself, The Roar of the Crowd, brought to life much of what you've just described, I assume. You know, it seems like something that could almost be developed into a movie today. It's such a fascinating and tragic story.
0: Well, it's funny you say that because apparently Chris Farley, was in talks with, I think, David Mamet for doing uh, something about Fatty Arbuckle. John Candy was interested. John Belushi was interested. And they're all gone. Wow. I was just going to say,
1: it's almost like there's a curse associated with it. Yeah, well, that's us hope not. <laughs> but in terms of making
0: it into a movie, those three guys are all gone. They're all gone. And I think it would make a fantastic movie. It's such a sad story. I, I think it would make a fantastic movie. They would just have to you know, find uh, a younger guy than me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's a, a subject open to debate, I'm sure. But talk talk a little bit
0: about the actual play itself. The first half of the play dealt with the, the party. And, and I think we introduced the show setting up his career a little bit and where he was. And then the party. And then the second half of the show was the courtroom, the three trials. Mm-hmm and and it was a it was a real tragedy it it also coincidentally uh, during rehearsals for that show my mother passed away oh my goodness yeah it was it was both a real high and of course a real low and i went up to vancouver for my mother's funeral and uh, in the middle of uh, rehearsal and then went back to rehearsal and there's something about you know if you can use things from your real life which as actors were supposed to do there was certainly something in in that sadness in that tragedy of the whole thing that 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 having gone through personally what i did with the passing of my mother could bring to the show i think hopefully it um it all kind of i don't know in a weird way worked but uh, yeah it was a very it was a very sad time and a very happy time at the same time
1: that sounds like such an unbelievable thing to have to work through nobody could have blamed you for walking away from it entirely. But to bring some of that emotion to the production itself must have been a
0: real challenge. Well, yeah. I think when I first got back, I just wanted to make sure I could make it through rehearsal without crying. Mm -hmm. You know, you just have that feeling of, uh, I can't go there. I can't go there right now. Right. But it actually was very helpful because it gave me something to focus on. And the cast and Flora Plum... The sister to Eve Plum of uh, the Brady Bunch fame, uh, Flora Plum was the director, and she couldn't have been more helpful in getting me through the whole thing. And the cast was so supportive; it was just a, a real rallying of the troops, and it worked. It was a, it was a really fantastic, fantastic show to do and to be part of. And Kathy Bates, not the movie star Kathy Bates, but Kathy Bates of Theater Forty, wrote the show and cast me in the show. And uh, I have really heard to thank for that and also to get through that very sad time for me.
1: The promo materials, which we featured in our marketing run-up to this interview, included Roscoe's mugshot and you in costume in a recreation of that picture. For those that haven't seen it, the resemblance is positively spooky. Was that part of the method of getting ready for the role?
0: Well, so many actors battle with this one because they they say they either work from the inside out or the outside in. And I'm just tend to be one of those actors who, if I get the look right, that feeds me and helps me with the part and helps me feel the part and, and, and be the part. I dyed my hair, which is, uh, well, was at the time brown. (laughs) Um, I had it dyed blonde. I've never had my hair dyed before and got it cut in that, in that, 1920s, late teens look of really kind of shaved in the back. And I found that kind of stuff incredibly helpful. If I could look in the mirror and see Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, then it just gave me that that kind of confidence to be him and to get the right clothes. And I think I had all the clothes tailor-made so the pants were exactly like the ones that he wore in photographs or the plaid shirt the bowler I had made by a hat company here in L.A. Mm-hmm. I find that kind of stuff really helpful because then I can kind of put that to bed and get to work on the other stuff.
1: So physically resembling the character is an important part of playing that character.
0: Oh, it sure is.
1: It sure is. For three seasons starting in 2009, you played Dr. Kasabi on the Family Channel's Wing in It television series based out of Toronto. Tell us a little bit about that role and your experience of working on the same show... For an extended period over multiple seasons, I think it ran a total of three seasons, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, we ran three seasons. Again, I hate to keep using this word. It was heaven. It was thanks to my friend Frank Van Keeken, who I originally met in Vancouver. Just uh, 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 talk about a workhorse. This guy is nonstop working on one show or another show he created Winging It, uh, and he said he created Dr. Kasabi, and he had me in mind, and just what a treat, what, what a treat to go up to Toronto, and I would go up for two months in a summertime, and uh, the hardest part was saying goodbye to my family, but that's another story, but to be in, in Toronto, and to be part of this TV show, and if you're in a show like this, and they know you, they start to write for you and they write in your rhythm. So earlier we were talking about the rhythm and my internal rhythm and, and Laurel and Hardy being part of that rhythm or Oliver Hardy. It's that same kind of, there's a way that people speak and they write for the way that you speak. If you're in a show and you're not just there for one day, you're there for two months. You just can't, it doesn't get better. It just doesn't get better for an actor to, to go on set every day and, and, and know where your set is and know your costume and, know your lines that they've written for you. And it's very special.
1: Are there any drawbacks in working on a show that extends over a number of years as it did?
0: I think the only thing that can't be good in that situation is being away from your family Mm -hmm. because the hours are long. And even though they came up from L.A. and stayed with me in Toronto for half of the time, you're going back to a hotel room and uh, you're working on your lines in your empty hotel room if your family's not there. I think that's the only drawback, because otherwise, it, it again, to me, is an actor's dream. And because the part is something that I love, It in fact, it was kind of like The Orkin Man. It's like, everyone has their slot. That's one thing I learned when I came to L.A., is they're not going to hire me for the comedic tough biker guy. They've got tough biker guys. They've got Eskimos. They've got everything they want here. So just not play you but play your type or what is your type? Where can we slot you? And I tend to be the friendly neighbor guy. So that fits into the Orkin or that fits into Dr. Kasabi. So, so to say, well, we'd like you to do that for two months and we're going to pay you for two months. You mean, I don't have to audition one to three, four times a day. Mm -hmm. You mean, I don't have to drive from my home to Santa Monica, Mm -hmm. sign me up. It was, I really can't think of any drawback.
1: In 2013, You landed a series of television and radio ads for Ford playing Santa Claus. I thought the ads were totally charming where your personality really comes through. The
0: kids, of course, are pretty cute as well. How did those come about? The Ford spots came around just like the Orkin spots where you're going out for one spot and you don't know how it's going to go and you just make the best of it. And here I got dressed in my Santa suit that I had bought at Restoration Hardware (laughs) You know, six, seven years before to entertain my kids on Christmas morning, which by the way, they never bought for a second. I would go out to my office, dress up like Santa, come back to the front door, and and think, oh, I'll, oh, I'll knock on the front door. And I'd knock, and they'd turn around and go, hi, Dad. Yeah, oh, that's not, right. And but, that's an actor. But I'm a professional. Yeah, I'm a professional. Hey, kids, darn it. I'm going to try this again. Now you get your lines right. So so I would go to the audition as Santa Claus in my Restoration Hardware Santa suit, and you go in the room, and you are surrounded by guys who are professional Santa Clauses with the fully grown beard, beard, the real beard. The real beard. The real beard, the suit that they had made for them. Again, you try not to get psyched out. You try and put those blinders on. And you go, I'm going to give it my best shot. And something went right in the audition. Uh, you know, you make them laugh or you do a something, something. And it worked. And I got on the set and they go, Wayne, I don't know if you know this, but we're doing 10 spots today. We're doing one for every new car we're introducing. Wow. You're talking about 10 session payments, 10 sets of residuals. Oh, and by the way, Wayne, we're going to do some um, some green screen work as well. And are you available to do radio work next week? Wow. <laughs> again, it just, I can't tell you how fortunate I have been. And and it happened two years in a row uh, where they said, we want to have you back. We want to have you back playing Santa again. Uh, yeah, it's just, I've been the luckiest guy. And the Santa job was just that. It was one audition and you go in and you give it your shot. I'm probably not going to be able to do this uh, script again, so I'm going to give it my shot. That particular one came around and it turned into this fantastic job that lasted two years and, you know, paid really well. Hello. Well, I get no reception at the pool. Now, what would you like for Christmas? Santa, we're going to have to do something. <laughs> so, you want a new smartphone for Christmas?
1: And a new Ford Edge to sync it
0: with. <laughs> Hold on now. What's sync? It's
1: called My Ford Touch, Santa. Ford Edge has this awesome sync technology. I can
0: make calls, take calls, and I can even hear my text messages out loud. You know, you're really giving me the 411 on the Edge. Oh, Santa, I wouldn't quit your day job. I won't. With both
1: Orkin and Ford, you bring life and personality to the characters you play. In practical terms, what's that process like? Is it improvisational in nature, or is it the result of tight scripting and following the
0: director's cues,
1: or or maybe something else?
0: Well, I think they want to see it the way they wrote it first, because they paid writers to do it. Right. So you do it right, or you do it the way they do it the first time, and then they, nine times out of ten, will say, just play with it a little bit see what you can do. Right. So they give you the freedom. And you know, when I'm at home and I'm sure every actor is like this, you kind of, you kind of think of ideas. I could go this route. I could go this route. I could throw this in and other things will come, come to you on the day of the shoot as well. So it's kind of a a real team effort. You get it their way first and then they let you play. And (laughs) sometimes when you, when you do it and, and they let you play, they go, yeah, okay. Uh, listen, let's go back to the script. Well, you you know <laughs> right. that one didn't work. <laughs> right. But sometimes you'll be watching television and you'll go, hey, that's my line. My line made it in.
1: So they have kind of a non-confrontational way of telling you that they just assume you do it the way it was originally written. Yeah, silence. <laughs> do you approach roles in television commercials such as Orkin and Ford as primarily art or commerce?
0: Boy, I would love to say, oh, no, it's completely art. Mm. Uh, but I'm afraid for me it isn't. It's it's from the audition to the actual day. I try to enjoy it as much as I can, and I try and get that enjoyment across. And And if it gets you that job and you're on the set, then you also try and get that enjoyment across because that's what makes it an enjoyable commercial to watch. That much of it is, is enjoying myself. First of all, getting the job, enjoying myself. And when do the checks come in? <laughs> Isn't that terrible? I mean that's terrible, but, but I just to be honest, you know, doing commercials is is like I make them as good as I can. I do the best job I can. <laughs> and when will that check clear? <laughs>
1: You don't rank the various kinds of work, whether it's television ads or something like The Roar of the Crowd, in terms of their artistic merit. You don't go through that calculation at all.
0: I think of doing the plays, doing theater as much more artistic. That was the biggest shock in coming down to LA, is in LA, theater doesn't pay very much unless you're in one of the big houses. So if you're doing smaller theater, uh, it's called a 99 seat agreement, or 90 yeah 99 seat agreement with American Actors Equity, and uh, so you get somewhere between five and twenty dollars for a show. Wow! So believe me, it ain't about the money. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you really go. I'm going to work on this show. I I love this part. I love doing Fatty Arbuckle for Theater Forty, all that stuff. But it really is for the love of the art. Right. And commercials are kind of the exact opposite. I still try and have as much fun. I still put as much care into it. But I know that there's a, a paycheck involved. You don't feel one competes with the other in any way? No, I don't think so at all. I think, I think I'm a guy who likes to work, and whether it's on commercials or whether it's in Roar of the Crowd or whether it's at the Arts Club or whether it's Runaway with Tom Selleck or with Mickey Rooney, I just love to work and I make it as good as I can for what it is. And I never think, well, I'm going to pull back here because this one doesn't pay. I give them all the best shot that I can. Thankfully, because we all have to pay rent and mortgage and and all that kind of stuff, and and we all have to eat, that thankfully, some of those pay.
1: In May of 2014, you wrote in your online journal that pursuing a career in acting, the auditions, the highs, the lows, the unpredictability, the memorizing, the rejection had all taken its toll on you. Can you tell us about this particular period in your life and the events that led up to it?
0: It's kind of a, it's a weird thing because it's really all I've ever done. It's all I did that stand out to me in high school and it's all I did in theater school and it's really all I kind of cared about through my Professional career, and to get to the point where you're kind of after 30 plus years, where you're kind of tired, and I started to feel like Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman. Sure. I I would see myself walking up after getting out of my car, and I don't mean this to sound pathetic, but I just had to be aware of what, how I was feeling. I would get out of my car, and I'd watch myself in the reflection of the dining room window as I went to my door. And thought, oh, my God, I'm even walking like I imagine Willie Loman would walk. <laughs> and And I just got tired of the highs and the lows and the I would go from many years ago doing one to five auditions a day to maybe one every two weeks. So all of a sudden that audition became really important. And I stopped having the fun that I would try and put into these auditions because it was so important. If you're doing one to five a day, you can kind of bang them out and have fun and, and kibitz and, and, and make jokes and try and get good buttons for things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When it becomes so important, to me anyway, it stopped being fun. And also down here, things changed a lot because at least with commercials, I'm told that 75% of all television commercials are now non-union. Being a member of the Screen Actors Guild uh, or SAG-AFTRA, all of a sudden there's just not the work and it becomes a hobby darn my kids but they keep eating yeah right yeah and they keep growing and baby needs a new pair of shoes <laughs> yeah right and 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 they need braces yes. and you know all that stuff so it just gets to the point where it, one it's a hobby and two it just ain't paying yeah. anymore anyway it just became it became more weighted that then I liked and and I stopped enjoying it as much so I started exploring other things
1: okay early in 2016 you were field manager for wait for it the new celebrity apprentice featuring this upstart Donald something or other whose shtick seemed to be firing people all the time so did you get to meet the man himself and if so what can you tell us and more to the point what are we
0: in for for at least the next four years I never got to meet him. He's the executive producer of the show. Right. Uh, this show has Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, right. That's, that's the new Celebrity Apprentice. Okay, I stand corrected. He's the, he's the new boss, and uh, I loved working on that show. I was working as a library coordinator at Hamilton Elementary School. Big plug for Hamilton because mm-hmm. it's in Pasadena and they are the nicest people on the planet. There you go. And I loved working in the library and working with the kids and I got to read to every class, but it didn't pay so well. Mm-hmm. So in December of 2015, my friend phoned me, a fellow actor from Theater 40, phoned me and said, do you want to try locations work? There again, a door was open and I thought, uh, yeah, let's give it a shot. So in January of 2016, I started as a field manager in the locations department for uh, the new Celebrity Apprentice. It's a lot of work. It's very different working on uh, behind the camera. Mm-hmm. But I learned a lot and uh, met Arnold. It was a, a really wonderful experience. And I got to tell you, I'm really getting a kick out of watching the show. Oh, there you go. And I feel like there's a piece of me in it. And if I ever forget there is, I see my name at the end of the credits.
1: All right. I- I'm going to tune in for that reason,
0: if for no other. So there you go. <laughs> In the latter part of
1: 2016, you were an assistant locations manager for Good Girls Revolt for Amazon, Colony for Universal USA Network, and now Angie Tribeca for TBS. Can you tell us about the locations manager role and your thoughts about participating in the business in this manner?
0: Well, I got to tell you, strangely, I noticed myself as I was driving around the other day that I was kind of happy. And I thought, wait a minute. I think this location's work is really not so bad. I get to explore L.A. Again, it brings me back to the history of L.A. and, and early history and all that. I get to see all that those kind of aspects of L.A. as I'm either scouting for a location or, or prepping a location or striking a location or, or we're actually filming – and i i kind of like it it's it's really interesting and there's a lot less pressure although it gets really pressure filled mm-hmm. because if for some reason something falls apart or a neighbor's playing music really loudly or there's a barking dog or something like that all that stuff you have to deal with as a locations person i really like it it's been a, it's been a really good experience and a real adjustment working behind the camera but but for now i like it even though my agent is scratching his head going what are you doing I'm thinking in time that I will be able to juggle both, and that if if one show transitions, maybe a month later the new show starts as a locations person, in that month that I have off, maybe I could squeak out an audition or two and, and be Santa again. Just to go back to what you said a second ago about what your agent said, does
1: he feel you have to choose between one or the other? You can do the locations work, or you can be an actor, but you can't be both.
0: All I can say is that I got a Christmas card from them this year, which tells me I'm still on the roster, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which is a relief because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to not get the Christmas card. And right. you go, uh, Are you still repping me? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but they, they completely get it because just across the board, the business has become so rough and a lot of non-union work that I know. They know that things are tough out there and that people are having to do other things. And frankly, I think I'm one of the lucky ones in my crowd of middle-aged guys who used to make their living off of commercials and things like that who have found something else to do. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And, and this, you've mentioned this a couple of times now, is that the invasion of, of non union work. Is that, what, what was the cause of that? Like, what, what precipitated that change?
0: Well, uh, Screen Actors Guild had a strike against producers. I'm sorry to say I don't remember the exact date, but Screen Actors Guild had a strike. But slowly, after that strike, producers, I think, started to think maybe we don't have to shoot in LA. Maybe we could shoot in Atlanta and not use union talent. Maybe they could just go the non-union route and and save money. So I think a lot of it came a lot of it came from that. That was one of the unfortunate kind of byproducts of, of the strike.
1: So it was a direct consequence of that. I mean that there was a a labor dispute and from that came this new environment. I think it all started back then. Yeah. Yeah. So so do you see the locations manager role as a gateway to maybe more progressively more senior roles in filmmaking? For example, do you aspire to direct or
0: produce for the stage or the screen? Boy, I wish I could say that I've got big aspirations to direct a movie or something like that. I don't. I really enjoy doing the the, uh, location work. I really enjoy being in the location department. If I could juggle both that and an acting career of some kind, then I would be a happy guy. But I, I don't have any aspirations to play King Lear, and I don't have aspirations to direct a movie. I'm really happy kind of figuring out this juggle of the two things that I'm doing for now.
1: You're married to BB and have two adorable kids. I I noticed on your professional resume that you've listed school library coordinator, improv workshop instructor, and after school class coordinator. So you obviously take the role of dad very seriously.
0: Oh, man. Being a dad is my favorite job ever. I love being a dad, and nothing will make me tear up faster. Then those damn 30 second commercials where some person's changing the diapers or picking up the little baby and putting it up to their face and all that stuff. I look over at Bibi, and the two of us are like just tearing up in, in, in just the space of 30 <laughs> seconds. So th- that, uh, children and my own kids are t- terribly close to my heart and I love, love, love being a dad. You sought
1: out the work at your kid's school so you could more actively participate in their education.
0: I did. I did. It was both to be at the school, but also just to, as the acting work kind of slowed down, to increase in income. So I tried to think, what am I good at besides doing the acting thing? So I would teach after school programs at my kid's school. Yes, it was to be close to my kids, but two, it was to make some extra money. Okay. And three, it was to uh, introduce kids to what I called the classic comedy movie club. And I would sit back and I would introduce them once a week to Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, Laurel and Hardy. And I can't tell you how heartwarming that was to see kids watching Harold Lloyd for the first time climbing up the side of the building, holding on to the clock, almost falling off the building. And to see these little these little people seeing it for the first time, I've been told a couple of times, and you know, I like to think it's true, but a couple of parents have told me, that their kid grew older and went into film school because of those classes. That
1: in itself was a very satisfying experience, but it also says something about the timelessness of the of the characters that you were introducing.
0: I, I think so. I think so. I think at first, you know, my kids sometimes i will I'll go, hey, I want to show you a movie. And they'll go, is it black and white? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do they talk? <laughs> yes. Yes, they talk. I mean, sometimes there's that reaction, and I completely get it. But these kids had signed up to a class knowing that they're going to be exposed to movie history. So they were they were really gung-ho, and, and these guys, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, never fail, and they didn't.
1: More generally, as you look down the road, what do you hope the future holds for you? Are there particular roles you would like, a particular comedic or even dramatic part? Is there a particular project for the stage or screen you would like to see realized
0: Boy, I wish I could say there was, but I, I don't have the aspirations to do a King Lear. Uh, I've just got to play that part. I don't have that I just I just somehow want to find the balance between the kind of regular work of the locations department. Uh, I, I'm just a guy who likes to work. So if I can just simply keep working then then I'm a happy guy. and so there's no there's no great role out there that I want to play as long as it's got the word employed next to it.
1: Here's a really important question, Wayne. What advice can you offer aspiring
0: actors who are in the midst of establishing their careers? I think to work as hard as you can. First of all, I was very fortunate that my mother completely supported me becoming an actor. Never, ever was it a question. So I was very fortunate, and I hope for young actors out there that they too have that same kind of support. Keep working. Do as many shows as you can. Do as many workshops as you can. Meet as many people as you can, go out to as many functions as you can, because so much of it, so much of it, I can tell you after 30 years, is networking, and things will come to you that way. If you're sitting at home, man, they are not going to come knocking on your door. Right. You've got to be out there. So if either one or both of your daughters wanted to be an actor, you'd encourage that? Yes, I sure would. I think the one thing I would say to people who are going to be actors, who, who are thinking of being actors, go for it. Strap in because it's going to be a roller coaster of a ride. Right, there's some fantastic highs, and then for sure it's going to go down in that valley. Yeah, guaranteed. And just just be ready for the ride and know that going in. And I just have a very funny little story. It's short. Uh, Edie McClurg uh, came on to AJ's Time Travelers as a guest star. I was a series regular. She came on and did a great thing, her her bit. And then a year or two later. I've got a small part in Hannah Montana with Miley Cyrus. Mm-hmm. So I come on the show. She's the guest star. I'm not. So we're standing in a group and she comes up to me and she goes, Wayne, is, is that all you do in the show? <laughs> and I go, yeah. Yeah, that's it. And she looks to the rest of the people who I was talking to and she goes, there's your lesson, boys. Save your money. <laughs> And I thought I don't think of that as a downer story at all. I think no. that's exactly right because you are going to be in a series and you are going to be a day player, and then you're going to go up and be. It's just a friggin' roller coaster ride, right. which can be a real joy, but also there's some pain in there.
1: On your professional resume, you've listed your as your special skills: bird whistling, ukulele, and that you recently completed a course of study at the New York Institute of Photography.
0: Pretty eclectic. Well. If I said I've completed that course at the New York Institute of Photography, I would not be uh, telling the truth. I'm working on it.
1: These are pretty diverse interests, Wayne. Is there an organizing idea behind them or are they just random things you're interested in?
0: I think the things that just interest me, uh, I think a ukulele, again, it goes back to old movies and things like that. Cliff Edwards, ukulele, Ike, things like that. I love that. I love that. Why don't I try doing that myself? Uh, Photography. You know, I kind of like that. That could be fun. I should do that myself. It is kind of eclectic. But again, it's just when a door opens or when when you get that kind of trigger of, I like that, then learn how to do it better. Get better. So what's the best way for me to get you to
1: demonstrate your bird whistling skills? Oh, let me get a little drink. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, is it name that tune? Do I, do I actually come up with the bird and then you imitate it or, or do you have some that you would like to, you, do you do it whatever way you want? I'll be
0: thrilled if you'll just do it though. I think for me, it's, there's, there's not one particular kind of bird. It's Wayne's bird. <laughs> and <laughs> it's more like, it's more like to me, it's like a cartoon bird Just like... say. <laughs> okay. Okay. Here we go. All right. There you go, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) That's (laughs) that's pretty good.
1: Holy smoke. I mean, it sounds like the birds in my backyard. I think think that's that's pretty amazing, actually.
0: Maybe it's me hanging around your backyard just uh, (laughs) waving and saying, hey, remember me from high school? (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what, what, what was it made you think that you wanted to do bird whistling as a hobby or you just discovered that you were good at it?
0: Yeah, it's just one of those things that you do as a kid. You go, hey, I can kind of make this whistle. And uh, then as an actor, you try and put something on your resume that's going to stand out. Just get somebody to go, oh, wait a minute, it says bird whistling. Could you do that for me?
1: We just happen to have a part that's got this big bird whistling element to it.
0: And I can't tell you how <laughs> many shows I've used it where, where you know, you're out in a forest. And, and then, hey, why is that actor turning away from the audience just to look up at the trees? And they'll turn away. And... Wow, look at that, huh? There's a a Uh, cartoon bird jay.
1: Yeah, We've established a bit of a tradition where we ask our guests if there is one question that they wish they had been asked in a previous interview but never had. So here's that opportunity for you. What's the question you've never been asked, and what's your answer?
0: Oh, my. I've heard this question before, not directed at me, and I've thought about it, and I think it's terribly interesting. When people go, was there ever a time in your life where you felt just sparked you in another direction, Mm -hmm. or all of a sudden you hit that kind of fork in the road, or that event happened that completely changed your direction. And I think, I'm not sure if we've addressed it uh, today, and and I can only tell you that I was trying to think of the one time that really changed direction for me, and I think it's when I auditioned for the National Theatre School of Canada, when i was 17 and i got accepted a week later they contacted my mother and said they had budget cuts and they would have to cut me from the program oh my goodness yeah that that and it's not a woe is me thing or anything like that it's just when when i look back and i go that is a moment that kind of things went off to the left or off to the right. So instead of going to the Theatre School of Canada, the National Theatre of Canada, their school, and and going the theatre route, I think I stayed in Vancouver and luckily went to Studio 58, which is a fantastic school, and went more, although we did theatre there, I, I went more the film route. I think, I think that was that, when I look back, that was that moment that kind of it went one way instead of another.
1: Is there something that you would do differently? If you could, again, I think we all ask ourselves this from time to time. If you could turn the clock back to grade nine, is there anything you would have done differently over the course of your life?
0: Boy, you know, I think I always look back and I always think, geez, I could have worked harder. I could have gone to more functions As, as I kind of as I gave my advice to to, you know, up and coming, aspiring actors and actresses. I think I would have done more of what I suggested that they try, Mm -hmm. which is go to more workshops, do more shows, do more, just completely do as much as you can. The funny thing is life kind of gets in the way. Yeah, I would love to take every single workshop, do every single show I could. But then wait a minute, you got a husband or a wife at home and oh, wait a minute, you got kids and all that stuff kind of factors in. And I get that. But I think looking back, uh, if I just could have squeezed in more work then I would, probably, I would probably do that.
1: Wayne, in closing, I can't thank you enough for this fantastic, wide-ranging, thought-provoking discussion. It's been truly a delight having you as our guest, and I hope that as your career and life continue to evolve, as I know they will, um, that you might come back on the show for an update at some point in the future.
0: Terrence, I would love that. I have so loved doing this. I don't know who doesn't want to sit and talk about themselves for a couple hours. (laughs) I certainly do. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. (laughs) It's such a treat. It really is such a treat. And I've listened to some of your other podcasts, and they are so good. And I couldn't wait. If I had to shut it off because I had to put kids to bed or something, I couldn't wait to get back to it because you're so good at it and if the cbc or npr or somebody doesn't call you and grab this uh they're crazy because you're doing a fantastic job and it's just been a real real treat for me
1: well i'm truly humbled by your comments wayne and i don't believe that i'm worthy of them but regardless thank you so much for that encouragement and most of all for spending the time today it's been so good to talk with you again my pleasure it for this episode of the work not work show and i would like to once again thank our special guest wayne thomas short it's been great if you like what you've heard please rate us on itunes it really helps we're also on patreon and we'd be honored if you would consider becoming a patron of the show which starts for as little as one dollar per episode our website is worknotwork.show and our podcast can be found on apple's itunes simply look for work not work no spaces in the podcast section we're also on dan benjamin's fireside we're on Twitter, at WorkNotWork, work, and all of your favorite social media platforms. Follow us on any one of those to get news about upcoming guests. We also have a companion publication on Medium. We look forward to hearing your feedback, so please leave your comments on one of our platforms. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog, Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your support and for your infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, supporting the Work Network Show, the show about people who have turned their passion into their profession.